Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including e-books and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Early Modern History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Yana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Camilla Russell, Publications Editor for the Institutum Historicum Societas Iesu in Rome, and Fellow in History at the University of Newcastle, Australia, to discuss her new book, Being a Jesuit in Renaissance Italy, Biographical Writing in the Early Global Age, out this year, 2022, with Harvard University Press. Hello, Camilla, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Jana. Thank you for this invitation to speak with you today. I'm so excited to talk to you about this book. So how are you? So you're in Rome, yeah? Yes, I am speaking to you from Rome. The sun is shining, it's autumn, and it's beautiful. Fall in Rome is magical. It is. Well, I mean, there's not really much of a bad time in Rome, is there? Well, midsummer. Well, it was a very hot summer, but we're we're through that now and enjoying. enjoying. All right, wonderful. So, thanks for joining me. All right, so my first job that I want to do is kind of fit this current work within your intellectual trajectory and sort out how you came to this. So, you're the author of Julia Gonzaga and the religious controversies of 16th century Italy. That's Prey Bulls, 2006. And then a number of essays on Jesuits, women, kind of the intersection of Jesuits and women. And so I'm seeing an interest in the Reformation process kind of writ large, but specifically how it plays out on the ground, right? The lived cultural experience of the Reformations. Is that a fair characterization? Uh, Yes and no. In some ways, my work is very archive-driven, And so I tend to try and ask the archives what they want to tell me. (laughs) And uh, in some, and in also in uh, in other ways, it's also very site specific because my research has always focused on Rome and its archives. And the Inquisition archive, which was the basis for my first monograph is just down the road or up the road from the Jesuit archive. So one day I randomly strolled into the Jesuit archives on a break from the archive of the Holy Office or Inquisition. And to my great wonder and surprise, I saw some uh, riches of archival holdings that I wasn't really expecting that took me on a journey to into global history. And so it was actually the Jesuit, um, the Jesuit um, internationalization that I saw in the 16th century that really attracted me because I was also a scholar transitioning from working in London to uh, back to my home country of Australia. And I wanted to try to uh, create a, um, a relevant frame for my new research project that would take me into my postdoctoral period of, of my career. And so I quite quickly after this random 
um, visit to the Jesuit archives, I decided that I wanted to make the Jesuits my subject of study in order to be able to bring myself geographically closer through my research project to my home country of Australia, if not to Australia, because, of course, Europeans were not there in the 16th century, which was my century of study. Uh, so I, I, I got close. I got into Asia um, through the, thanks to the Jesuits. So that's kind of more the frame. But you are absolutely right that we are looking at the period of the Reformation and the Reformations in their very broadest sense. And this is a period of great religious turmoil as well as incredible uh, renewal, especially through the sort of cultural projects that develop out of that Reformation impetus to expand, define, um, reinforce, uh, self-identify, all of these kinds of processes also have quite a dynamic expression, which I was quite interested to explore. Yeah, certainly. So how does how does the current work come out of that movement? And I mean, I, I think fairly self-evident, but like, let us know how this move into the Jesuit archives gives us this work. So, yeah, I think that the, the because the Jesuits were uh, established in 1540, they are this pivotal uh, moment in time that I think uh, really looks back to late medieval religiosity as well as sort of Renaissance culture and then into its present with the drama of the Reformation that's taking place all around and then into the future where I suppose the confessionalisation process of Catholics and Protestants having to kind of define who they are against each other um, and then that, and then, and then the, the, the projecting out into the wider world that happens, especially in the Catholic sphere, sphere as a result of that. Um, and so, I think for me, as a kind of a Renaissance Reformation trained scholar, um, the Jesuits are a really perfect fit for me to able to be able to explore the questions that interest me about the 16th and then into the 17th century, including, I mean, you've kind of raised um, the, the question also of, of gender there. I mean, it's, um, you know, my first book is, is very specifically about a woman and the place of woman, especially elite um, in a very male-dominated culture and the kind of agency that she was able to have and also the limits to that, that really interested me. And then I, I really transposed those questions to a very male world. Um, and, uh, and, and that, that I, I was already sensitive to questions of agency and how gender shapes the kinds of questions uh, that you ask of yourself and the world around you and also the kinds of uh, choices that you make as well as the limits of those choices. And I tried to carry those kinds of questions into my book also uh, about being a Jesuit in Renaissance Italy, which is also a little bit provocative because um, I, am, I wrote this book as a, as a woman, obviously, but the title of the book sort of makes a claim to try to understand what that being might be. Um, obviously, I'm not a male author or a Jesuit author, um, but I want to, I want, I, that's a provocative um, way of also commenting on the role of the historian, which is a guessing game. We can only ever try to get close to our sources. Um, we can't ever get right inside them. No, and we just need to be honest about that, right? Yeah. The fault is pretending there's a perfect source, not that, yeah, right, like that's impossible. And, you know, so let's talk about your source material. So you have this treasure trove of material and, and like, you know, literally in front of you uh, right now, I'm assuming, or behind you. Um, so, and most of the material from this book comes from here. So tell us about this documentation. What, what are you looking at? Like, what, what do you have in front of you? Yeah, so in some ways the book is a kind of a an exposition of the archive itself. So I try to share with the reader what the archive is uh, and, and then I try to explain uh, through my source choices a very particular kind of source that I've identified and tried to group together and call collectively biographical documents. Um, 
so the the archive is actually where I work uh, right now. So yes, it is behind me and also beneath me. Uh, and I was very privileged to be able to sort of complete my research and the book uh, while I was working here, although the, the largest part of the work that I did for this book was before I took up this current role as publications editor. And um, and my work in the archive as a, as a researcher alongside other researchers um, gave me a view into these really large numbers I kind of discovered really just by looking through all of these sources, um, how many first-person documents there were, how many of these so-called sort of self-narrative documents, documents written in the first person, and not just letters, which we would expect to find in any uh, organisation, but um, also, you know, as I mentioned in my book, you know, petitions, um, life stories, not quite autobiographies or memoirs, but sort of accounts often sort of based around the story of vocation. Um, and then sort of reaching beyond the, the I documents, uh, I also found that very um, closely connected uh, documents written about uh, specific Jesuits with this, with often a very, very high level of detail about each and every single Jesuit. And I felt that these document types collectively called in my book biographical documents needed to be um, extracted in some ways from their um, institutional frame and their sort of administrative frame and given a name and given their own analysis. And I chose to do that by recreating a life story by way of these multiple documents. So I don't, I, I, so I, I trace uh, an, an entire sort of Jesuit life span, but never focusing on a single Jesuit. So it's a kind of, a, it is a multi-biography. These kinds of studies, of course, have been done before and these kinds of analysis have been done before, but I sort of pull together the document type and and the identification of a specific genre um, within the frame of it, of trying to retell a, a Jesuit lifespan um, in, in a way that, that I try um, to then share with, with the readers, yeah. So there's um, you know, this collaborative telling of a life story and then, um, okay, and you, you know that... Um, most of these documents, many of these documents are intended for posterity. Right? What, what does that mean and how can you tell? What does that do for them? So, yeah, they're intended for posterity and even before that, I suppose, they're also intended for multiple eyes to read, um, except for a very few that are written uh, with the express purpose of being uh, uh, of being addressed just to the superior general and only he can read and reply to those letters and they're called solely. For all of the rest of the, uh, the sources, they are expected to have multiple readers as well as be kept for posterity. Now, not all of these petitions and requests and uh, and sort of notes, these personal notes um, that I include in my book would have necessarily been understood to have then gone into kind of the archive and be read by me <laughs> in, the, uh, in the early 21st century. I don't think that every Jesuit would have had that in mind, but certainly um, those in the uh, responsible for the sort of governance side of the Society of Jesus' organisation um, were aware that these letters would be preserved and, in fact, um, very actively did preserve the letters. And, and to this day, there's a very, very careful process of conserving uh, the important correspondence that moves through um, the Society of Jesus. So 
there is a very, very special accent on the production and, and, and preservation of these sources, which makes them just so plentiful. Um, how does that shape the way they're written? It means that the, the dynamic as I argue in the book, is multidirectional. It's always very conscious of, of this multiple readership um, and the question of posterity in the end is there. Um, so it means right from the beginning that we're looking at uh, documentation that is highly connected. It's very, as I say, dialogic. It's very relational. It's very much about connecting up the individual to the collective group, which for the Jesuits means being part of a single body, individual parts making up the single body. So they think in these very Pauline terms, following the idea of St Paul, trying to kind of hold together the diversity and unity of the Christian tradition. And the Jesuits really take this to heart and they practice it I would say, in their documentary production. <laughs> okay. Um, and so we have these legal, very practical documents. What do we do? We've got this thing. What do we do with it? But then there's also these, they are meant to offer guidance. Even those documents are meant to offer guidance. We see a lot of consolation, care, right? Um, a lot of like almost familial document, documents as well, uh, which must also flesh out the story, right? And, and, we're, those are for posterity as well. They're for each other. Are they? Are they also? I mean, are they? Are they helping the individual sort their voice or something? Yeah, I, I think that all, all of those things they have. I think they were produced um, with multiple objectives in mind, and what comes out of these documents because as I say I mean my process was very much a, a process of discovery I didn't really know um, how these documents played out until I, I entered into them and in, entered into their contents and I think one of the surprising characteristics of these documents is that they, they actually read as quite intimate so there, you're, you're right, there's this sort of pastoral and I would also say familial um, character to them. So these men renounce to their family networks, although my book shows lots of ways in which they are retained over their lives their lifespans but on the whole they really considered themselves to be replacing their family by birth with their a new family the family of the society of jesus and you can see that in the way the letters are written so the father general the superior general is for them a father figure and they write to him in those terms and the superior general writes back in the persona of a father. And uh, now these, of course, are tropes. They're, um, they're, they're kind of standardised um, practices that we can see even in, uh, in the title father that is given to, um, to religious uh, priests. However, um, I think that these documents give us some insight into um, how this um, dynamic, this relationship was a felt and lived dynamic that was taken quite seriously. Mm. And, uh, yeah, okay, this very internal process. So, you know, when you said, like, you you went in and you wanted them to tell you, you want to go to your documents and let them talk to you, which is a solid historical practice, but it's also kind of required. Because with the Jesuits in particular, it seems like a lot of what we know about the Jesuits is what other people think about them, right? There's a lot of people talking about the Jesuits. A lot of people are angry at the Jesuits. A lot of people are jealous of the Jesuits. And so I feel like a lot of uh, what we know about Jesuits doesn't come from them. And you have this very different perspective, right? You are able to uh, focus on the on these people specifically, what is, like and what they're saying and how they're talking to one another. So, what does that allow you to do that others have not been able to do? What what can you do that's unique with this study? 
Yeah, thank you for 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 highlighting um, that. Probably, um, yeah, you, you've you've helped me think that maybe I might have helped fill a gap, um, which I which I hadn't really seen. Um, you are absolutely right that um, the Jesuits tend to be talked about a lot, uh, and. And uh, I um, try to put at the forefront their own voices about themselves, um, both in as individuals and through those individuals as a collective whole. Um, so it is a different perspective. I try to write their history, as I say, from within. Uh, and in some ways also from below because I try to put uh, otherwise unknown Jesuits side by side with uh, Jesuits who became very famous like Robert Bellarmine and Matteo Ricci. Um, even superiors general turn up in my book um, as, as novices who bring their personal goods with them um, like like their fellow Jesuits who we've never heard of. So uh, I try to give voice to these individuals within their collective uh, environment. I think uh, in telling the Jesuits' story, trying to do that through their own words, Obviously, understanding that that's a construction as well. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not telling some kind of transparent um, history without without filters. They're, they're they're filtered all the way through these sources. Uh, but my objective, in some ways, um, meant that I think indirectly I was able to answer a question that uh, helps also explain why the Jesuits are talked about so much. And one of those questions is how did they get to be so influential and what was their appeal? And the book tries to answer those two questions by presenting these documents as evidence of Jesuits' uh, following quite an individual path for themselves and being able to express themselves and find voice mm-hmm. in their uh, wider institutional framework in a way that I think is quite remarkable for the early modern period and I think may provide that key for understanding why it was so appealing especially to elites who had a high level of agency in the first place and found it, Mm -hmm. I argue, um, for many, many of them found it also in the Society of Jesus and that through that individual um, voice that we can hear through these documents, I think we also get to touch on the Um, extraordinary impact of the Society of Jesus because those individuals were operating at quite a high level of their individual potential in our current terms, in the way that we might think about using our skills to our highest possible potential. Those kinds of theories were circulating in the Renaissance and I would argue that the the Society of Jesus was very good at capturing and applying those ideas. That then helps us understand why they get talked about so much because they're they're able to operate at these very high and and extreme sort of frontier places and, uh, and they get noticed for it. They get admired and then they get critiqued for it uh, because there is something distinctive about how they're operating, I think, and my book tries to kind of account for that really as an indirect objective. Sure. Yeah, I, I mean, they are. I mean, there's no question that there's something captivating about them then and now. Right? People really like to think about and talk about the Jesuits. 
So one of the things I, um, I kind of uh, thought we were going to get to there and I would like to come back to is why, why do people become Jesuits? What made these other, you know, often very educated, very accomplished people decide that they would like to go into the Society of Jesus? Well, it is, it is a really difficult question to answer in some ways. Um, when when we're speaking about people, um, you know, they're, they're probably the only ones who can answer that question. But as my book shows in Chapter 1, we've got quite a lot of sources, um, thankfully, that help shed light on the vocation process into the Society of Jesus. So young men and sometimes boys who present themselves and write autobiographical statements and respond to questionnaires about why they have joined. And there's a really large number of reasons why they join. But the first one that over that that underlines all of them is that they they really are vocations. They are they are genuine. Um, they're not there through any kind of family or social pressure. Um, that is that often often Jesuits joining are um, are resisting family pressure to stay in their family. Something that I think other scholars would be able to answer better than me about 16th century um, youth culture is that uh, my sense is that a lot of these young men saw more satisfaction for themselves uh, working in a religious institute like the Society of Jesus uh, rather than um, out in the world, so nel secolo. So apart from, of course, the religious vocation to want to serve God and fellow human beings, uh, I think there was also a sense for many of these young men that they could, that idea that we're familiar with as well in certain sectors today of kind of, I think I can make a difference here. I think I can do something that makes sense to me. Um, and in reading these vocational statements, I got a sense that that was happening for these young men. So, so I would be very interested as a social historian to look at its social and um, cultural dissatisfactions with um, family dynastic operations, 16th, 17th century. I have a feeling there were quite a few crises um, taking place in the uh, in the social structure of 16th, 17th century, and I'd love to know more about that. But I think there's a kind of a, a response there, and the Society of Jesus is there to kind of capture, I think, generations of quite disaffected youth, um, and I think that that's a thing that's really, really rich. Um, but as I say, also we need to take our minds um, into the 16th century mindset where salvation is a very serious question and the growing missionary identity in the, in the course of the late 16th century of the Society of Jesus means that the opportunity to save souls is a very, is, is a very attractive one. So, so that's, that's obviously very important for many of them as well. Yeah, you note that, that the Jesuit overseas mission is integral to the Jesuit identity in this period and from very early on. So, I mean, speak more about that, would you? Like what, how going overseas and saving souls is, a, is, uh, and, uh, is appealing to these, to these people? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the society is founded in 1540 right when, uh, when, of course, Europeans are expanding their activities and interests right out um, beyond Europe's uh, borders. And the evangelization project is an integral part of that expansionism that's taking place. And for... The Jesuits, um, right from the very beginning, the um, the mission uh, to help souls, as it's defined in the spiritual exercises and then in the constitutions, uh, becomes synonymous with going where those souls need the most help. And for a Christian European, that means any peoples who are not aware of uh, and have not embraced the Christian faith. And so the desire to go to those people uh, 
uh, and then uh, and then engage in the the work of conversion to Christianity is at the at the top of the list, uh, and and very specifically. Um, of, of great value for uh, Ignatius and his fellow first companions um, because of this idea of going where the need is greatest. And as I say, that's at the top of the list. Um, what makes that so um, effective in some ways in terms of then the subsequent history of the Society of Jesus and its missionary identity, the fact that this kind of takes off um, is linked, of course, to their Iberian um, their Iberian identity. Most of the early uh, members are from either Spain or Portugal, and therefore travel quite naturally throughout into their overseas empires. Uh, but also, um, the uh, the, the members of the early members of the Society of Jesus also uh, developed through the model of the of the spiritual exercises, which were written by Ignatius of Loyola before the foundation of the Society. Um, it it specifies that um, spiritual accompaniment, accompaniment should also include. Um, entering into a true dialogue with the other person, which means understanding the other person and also meeting that person in a very real and genuine way, almost on their own terms. It's not relativistic in the way that we would consider sort of um, relativism of, of value systems, but it is about a true meeting. And that's that's um, codified in the spiritual exercises and it enables the Jesuits to go uh, among peoples who, uh, who are not Christian and to have that meeting um, and, to, and to sort of meet them at their own level, at least on a cultural and social uh, basis. And that gives them a kind of an entry point that is quite distinctive um, for this to the Society of Jesus and gives them a very particular method that then comes to be known as accommodation. Um, but it is it is a very interesting explanation for the early success and expansion of the overseas missions. So I actually um, I suspect many of our listeners are not very familiar with the spiritual exercises. Could you talk a little bit more about what what that looks like and what it means to a Jesuit? Yeah, the spiritual exercises were devised by Ignatius over really a number of decades from the 1520s and uh, and they were devised as a, a sort of a meditation um, method of medita- meditation, you know, usually conducted in the frame of a, of a retreat, a spiritual retreat, where an individual conducts a series of meditations that are guided um, both through the text that emerges, as I say, over decades of practice. So it's it's first a practice and then really a text uh, written by Ignatius of Loyola. Uh, in order, and, and it is it is also accompanied. So it is uh, a text that is used by the person to accompany the person uh, who is engaged in an individual retreat or an individual process of meditation that is structured over, wait for it, four weeks. So this is not for the busy 21st century person who wants to do a retreat in five minutes. This is a process that um, anticipates also changing one's whole life, possibly, um, often directed at, of course, people who then um, enter into religious life, but very importantly uh, was devised for anybody who was interested in following this, including women, including lay people. Uh, And so this sort of meditative um, process and, and system established through the writing of this text, The Spiritual Exercises, um, 
becomes the foundation stone for both prospective Jesuits who do the spiritual exercises on entering the society, um, but also for uh, lay people. It had a really significant success among lay people uh, who were able to do the exercises up until a certain point um, in the in the program. Uh, the point um, before you then um, proceed if you're going to enter into religious life, but it's 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 um, it's intended to be followed by, by both um, religious and lay people. Does that help a little bit? Yes, absolutely. Um, and so, like, and these spiritual exercises, you argue, it really ground the Jesuits at home and abroad. There's something they can go back to to re, to kind of re like re-familiarize themselves with their faith and the mission that they're on. Yeah. yeah, so the spiritual exercises are really interesting in the way that they're um, geared towards uh, what a lot of scholars have kind of talked about as sort of applied spirituality. So it's intended to be a framework through which um, one can then proceed from uh, that process of retreat and meditation into applying the insights um, that have been obtained through that process into one's everyday life. So they are um, they can be put into practice. And that's very appealing for Jesuits who, as you say, can go back to the spiritual exercises and use them to, uh, to kind of um, to give them direction uh, in their own individual path, as well as for non-Jesuits who can use them also to, to kind of um, direct uh, their steps in a, in a very practical way. Um, so that the applied nature of the spiritual exercises in terms of thinking about how to uh, to exercise one's um, one's uh, I suppose mission that uh, that has been sort of established through this accompanied um, process is, is the goal and the kind of strength and the reason why the spiritual exercises are so um, so appealing to so many people in the 16th century? It's the best, you know. This is this is this this becomes one of the the most um, famous um, meditation systems, really, for the Christian tradition. Right. Okay. Yeah. And it's and it's it's available to everyone, really. Like we could we could follow the spiritual exercises yeah. if we wanted to. It assumes uh, Christian faith, uh, so it assumes Christian faith. Yeah, uh, but it's it's um, of course kind of um, that's that that was the only that was the only way um, to, to to think uh, in in sixteenth century Europe. Um, but it's it's um, it's applicability um, and it's uh, and it's flexibility in some ways is a very interesting characteristic of it. So, you know, I'm getting this picture as we're going, as we're talking about this, of it's very mission driven. It's a place where you can do good. There are these spiritual exercises that are, that are intellectual and spiritual, but also very practical. I'm getting this vision of the Jesuits as a very practical, outward thinking, like active order, which, which jives with your book and kind of everything that we know about the Jesuits, I think. But then there's also this story of a life cycle that you're telling where, you know, we talk about how people join the order and then there, you, did, you dedicate an entire chapter to people leaving via death or dismissal, um, you know, voluntary departure. So there's a life cycle situation that feels much more uh, personal and interior. Um, but reading this chapter about death, I got a sense of the completeness of the Jesuit story, right? That leaving is as, is as integral as coming, that there's a struggle that must be completed. And I haven't really managed to fashion a question here, so perhaps you can jump in and help me out. Um, what, what's the importance of departure? What does it tell us about the Jesuits? Like, what's the life cycle here? Yeah, I think that the... the 
the final chapter that I wrote about death and departures from the Society of Jesus was one of my favourites in some ways because I, I, I was able to tap into this 16th century way of seeing the continuation of life, you know, beyond death. And, um, and you can see it in the, in the documents um, that, that these, um, these family members consider themselves to be continuous uh, parts of a family that carries on obviously beyond death. But I think that that helps us understand, and this is obviously not just for the Jesuits, I mean so many of my findings help us tap into 16th century early modern mentalities that sometimes are difficult to find in the written records, but we can find them among the Jesuits, but it's not specific to the Jesuit way of thinking. But this, this idea of belonging to a religious institute or a family that that really does continue through the generations, not just through its living members, but also through its dead members. So the the, the inscribing of the of anniversaries, the inscribing of the um, the programming of masses to be said for the repose of the soul of you know Father So and So. Through these sources, we know about these things, but through the actual autobiographical documents as well as the biographical, the ones about, you know, by and about um, individual Jesuits, you get this sense of the family um, identity, which I think, again, helps us understand the institutional, uh, the, 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 the the sort of psychological strength that I think these community um, are able to sort of um, acquire from this sense of family that's multi-generational and transcends death. So departure for these Jesuit members never happens. And that's, that must have been a great source of, as the Jesuits say, consolation um also because we need to keep in mind that life expectancy is not particularly high here so this is really important way of making sense of life by in some ways removing death but also removing any need to leave the society so that's on the one side but in the final chapter there's also those who leave or are um or who are expelled and they're dismissed, um, as the as the name of the documents um, suggests. They're dismissed. That's really interesting, and this gives us insight into what happens when you don't belong anymore. It's really scary, um, and again, insight into early modern belonging. The fact that nobody really in the 16th century wants to be a freestanding individual, completely detached from one's community, whether that's family or religious institute or whatever group you might be assigned to or assign yourself to, that group is so important to your survival. So what happens when you're dismissed or you depart? You're cut off. So you don't belong to that body anymore. Now, the constitutions do um, stipulate that it's really important to treat with charity people who are dismissed and to assist them to make that departure. However, the sources, as my book shows, tells all sorts of quite sort of horrific stories um, and they're uh, sort of moral tales, actually, about the terrible things that happen to those who abandoned the society or caused scandal to it and had to be dismissed. And so there are stories of violent deaths, there are stories of people, ex-Jesuits, turning to criminal behaviour, of terrible misfortunes happening to them, um, all as obviously divine punishment, um, according to the Jesuits who wrote the sources, for this cutting off, whether voluntarily or um, on the part of the society. And the society, in fact, did dismiss quite large numbers of applicants, um, not very many once they were fully professed, um, so fully um, incorporated into the society, but quite large numbers, especially in the early years. So this is a very selective 
uh, society. And this cutting off um, with various levels of quite dramatic consequences for the individuals, at least in terms of what the documents tell us, um, helps us again understand what membership um, looks like to a 16th century person. And I think that can really help us ask all sorts of questions about the role of religion and and sort of um, and community in particular, um, or in general, um, in early modern um, worldviews um, and, and, and the quite dire consequences for not belonging. Mm-hmm. Um, it, is, it is quite scary and it helps us to really think about also to certainly not idealise um, these 16th century mindsets um, and to see how, um, for us, cruel um, they can be in terms of all un, um, un, uh, sort of disrespectful, obviously, of different choices that might mm. have been made for who knows what kinds of reasons. And really how difficult it is to just be unaffiliated, like family, community in some way. Yeah, one of the things that I really enjoyed about your book is just these kind of bigger questions that, you know, this ongoing discussion of the place of the individual, ideas about free will, you know, these things that we might have sat around and talked about in a dorm room early on. These are things that you're you're getting at, right? You've got these voices that are helping us really understand like there are a lot of implications for ongoing kind of greater discourses in the Renaissance that are that you you touch on in the book that you really address that I think are in these sources as well for further study. Yeah, I think uh, that the early modern period in some ways is awash with sources, but it can be very difficult to get to the individual. And one of the arguments of my book is that um, the individual will always be contextualised and that's how it needs to be. That's where safety is found. Um, Sometimes, of course, that can end up being quite dangerous, (laughs) Um, but actually that's where safety is found in the community and the group. And so in some ways also we don't need to be surprised to find uh, that uh, the requirement for obedience is a very important one because the community needs to then operate uh, operate in a in a in a kind of as this single body. So there does need to be a hierarchy, and there does need to be a sort of process of of sort of centralised governance um, on practical terms um, as well as on theoretical terms for the sixteenth century mind. So within that framework, uh, I think these documents then. Um, take us as close to the individual as we might be able to hope to uh, to arrive. Now, in saying that, uh, I have to say that when I started out on my research project, I really wanted to explore the missions and the hopefully I hoped to find something about the peoples to whom the the Jesuits ministered um, in their work in the missions, and I. I wasn't able to find that much. Now, since writing my book, I want to continue on that line of trying to find at least the dialogue, evidence of the dialogue between um, European Jesuits and the non-European peoples that they encountered. But in my initial um experience of the archive which in some ways I've shared with readers through this book what I discovered was the voices of the Jesuits themselves so in the end rather than try to transcend those voices and go past them I thought no let's let's look at those voices and hear what they have to say also when they touch on the unknown, when they find themselves in Japan, when they find themselves in China, when they find themselves in India and they're trying to make sense of their world. And what we find is what happens to us sometimes when we're walking down the street looking at the Colosseum, we're actually talking about what we want to have for dinner that night in the little trattoria or even more we might talk about our favourite dish back in Melbourne that our mum would make for us. And rather than projecting our minds into the world of the Colosseum that we're looking at or into the world of the local Romans who we're walking past, I found that in the Jesuit documents, that they're talking about themselves. 
themselves. They're talking about their friends. They're talking about what they're missing in Rome. They're talking about what's odd to them, but they're not so much giving us that um, anthropological um, that we're just dying to find um, and that is difficult to get hold of, even though a lot of my colleagues have done great, great work in extracting from the mission documents voices of uh, the peoples um, where the missions were taking place. But I kind of stopped um, with the Jesuits themselves and wanted to share their story. And another objective in some ways of the book, um, since I found myself kind of in the company of these 16th century Jesuits, and I had to learn how the Society of Jesus worked because my doctoral research was on a completely different subject. I had to learn from scratch um, what the Society of Jesus was and how it functioned. I decided to share that with my readers as well. So um, I often say in my book, this is also about how things work. So it's it's just sharing really what I found and um, putting it out there as a as a kind of a, a guide uh, to to how how the early Society of Jesus worked. Yeah, it is. Um, I feel that I know the Jesuits uh, much better than I ever have before, and I, I have a certain fondness for the Jesuits already. But I really. Uh, I really grew to a new level of affection here. Um, so I've taken up a great deal of your time already. So I've just got one more, one last question. So uh, what's next? Are you working on, are these, you continuing to work in these archives or are you moving forward? Yeah, well, I have to say that this year I've taken a little bit of a step back. Um, I need to, I need to wait and see uh, what comes up which is kind of what I did for my postdoctoral work as well. I stepped back and and let and let things kind of take their course, and then of course put my you know historian's goggles on and and and, and dived in deep. So um, stay tuned on that. I think that it will probably. Uh, I think I need to explore this uh, concept of accommodation a little further and try to understand the two-way process of interaction in the missions. It's such a complex story. It's a very difficult one to tell. Uh, But I also think that it might be the most important one to tell in terms of the history of the Society of Jesus for early modern historians and for what the early modern period can tell us about um, cultures when they meet each other and when they also uh, coexist with each other and also when there are power imbalances. Um, These are big questions that we're dealing with today and I think that the 16th and 17th century and the Society of Jesus in particular can provide keys to asking questions of the early modern period about these contact histories. So that's probably the direction I'm going in, but uh, yeah, stay tuned, as I say. All right, wonderful. You've got some time. You know, like there's there's something really nice about being able to just sit with it for a while and see what comes up. Yeah. Fantastic. All right, readers, this has been our listeners, uh, soon-to-be readers. Uh, once again, I'm here with Camilla Russell, talking about being a Jesuit in Renaissance Italy, biographical writing in the early global age uh, from Harvard University Press. There's a purchase link from our website or look it up wherever you're interested in buying books. Thanks very much for joining us. And Camilla, thank you for joining me again today. Thank you. All right. Take care. You too.